I'm very excited to announce that this episode of the Inside Out series is sponsored by Oppo Ice Cream. Oppo was founded by two brothers, Harry and Charlie, who went on a mission to create healthy food which actually tastes delicious. Their journey resulted in the most mouth-watering range of ice creams. With everything from their typical chocolate and hazelnut to their zesty lemon ice cream, they really do have a flavour for everyone. Now, with ice cream being my absolute favourite dessert, I don't dish out compliments easily, but this stuff is seriously blooming good. And the double salted caramel flavour has really gotten me through some very tough times. Oppo, thank you very much for your tremendous support. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to season two of the Inside Out series with me, Susie Flory, a stripped back podcast that celebrates everything and anything taboo. This season, I'm joined by a range of amazing guests who open up, delve in at the deep end and share their own inspiring stories. Each guest's own journey is completely unique and together, through the power of real lived experiences, they help me teach those all important lessons you didn't actually learn in school. I know a lot of the listeners will relate when I say that getting a job is really tough as it is, and especially at the moment. So for those of you who want to know the ins and outs of what it actually takes to get a job post-pandemic, then this is the episode for you. Today I am joined by Julietta Dexter, who is founder of London's top PR and communications agency, The Communication Store. She founded her company aged just 25 after quitting her job and with only £600 in the bank. Today she joins me to discuss what it's really like to build a business whilst also being respected as a female founder. She gives some really practical and invaluable advice on how to actually get your job application noticed. I know you will enjoy her words of wisdom as much as I did. So welcome Julietta, thank you so much for joining me today on the Inside Out series. Well thank you for having me Susie, it's lovely to see you. And uh, I hope we're going to have a really great discussion together. I'm really excited. I've read your book and had the pleasure of doing so. And I hope other people will. And I'm sure they will after they've listened to this. But I think what really inspired me is, I suppose, your journey from the beginning, because you were very much in a similar age to what I am now. And it'd be great if you could kind of just tell the listeners a bit more about how you founded the communication store and what gave you the motivation to do so. I guess that um, I love the idea of me being you, Susie, and I can I can I can think about your career over the next twenty five years, which I will <laughs> I will watch it with interest. Um, but I suppose that my journey was that after school and university, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. To be honest with you, when I did one of those careers tests at school, they told me that I was best suited to be a social worker. And actually, I think maybe I am a social worker, just in a different industry, insofar as I do work in the service industry, serving other people. And so I had a a moment that I wasn't expecting in my life, of course, right at the end of my university career. And um, I think I start the first chapter of the book with this. My father died very, very suddenly overnight, um, about three weeks before my finals at university. And so one of my lessons is you can plan as much as you like and life doesn't always work out along the lines of your plans. Things get in the way and being okay with that and learning how to cope with that is, I think, lesson number one, particularly now in the virus crisis. So 
in leaving university, my rock, if you like, my guide, my mentor um, was gone. And I sort of fell into the world of um, marketing, communications and PR um, by mistake, really. I, I don't think I'd thought of that as a career for me. And I went into this world of work, which I found absolutely enlighteningly exciting. Um, uh, it was the world of, of brands, of fashion, of beauty, of lifestyle brands. And um, I just thought, this is just amazing. You know, this is a really fantastic career. Just so, so many different things that you could learn, so many skills that you needed. I love the sort of multitasking aspect of, of, of my work and incredible people, creative people, just just wonderful. However, what I also found was a certain amount of toxicity in the workplace. And um, I found that, I suppose, in my grief, actually, really difficult to deal with. But it wasn't just me. So much time was wasted in the office talking behind people's backs or saying horrible things about the boss or, you know, all of those <laughs> things. Um, kind of office politics, I think that's what it's called. And I just thought to myself, this is, this is just nuts. This is just kind of crazy that this is what... I've worked so hard at school and university to get into this world and then this is, this is what I've found. And so I decided to set up a company and I was very, very lucky because uh, one or two of the clients that I had previously worked with uh, found out that I was sort of basically spare and wondering what to do. And so I suppose my golden ticket was that they said, look, go freelance, become a consultant, start up your own business, come in-house but we will guarantee you some income over the next months. So if you like, I could pay my bills, I could pay my rent, etc. And I decided to start a business, not because I thought I could do it better than anybody else. In fact, far from it. I thought, what the hell am I doing? There are so many people who can do this just as well as or much better than me. I mean, what on earth do I know about this? But what I felt incredibly driven by and passionate about was... Could you create an office, a group of people working together who could treat each other the way that I wanted to be treated? Or because you were the junior or the intern, was it just mandatory that you had to be treated just as the intern or just as the junior person? Or could you create a workplace where people were valued, respected and looked after in the way that you want to be looked after yourself? And so that was really it. It was 25 years ago, nearly exactly. And I wrote two business plans. One was a financial one. Um, I've still got those documents in my desk in the office. And the financial one is a graph with an X and a Y axis and a sort of line going up from zero to sort of somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, none of that happened. It all happened very differently. And the other business plan was about culture and values and business ethics. And it was all about whether you could do this and be in business and be a decent human being, or did you have to be the Wolf of Wall Street? Because I mean, when you did all of this, you were super young and you were sort of not fresh out of university, but not far off really. And I mean, what kind of gave you the confidence to do this? Was it the support from those clients who came to you and said, Julieta, we back you? Or did you kind of just feel like you were slightly faking it and just going with it? Oh, no, I've had imposter syndrome all along. Absolutely, <laughs> for sure. Um, I think that the clients obviously gave me that golden ticket because I knew that I could actually 
you know, go to Sainsbury's and get some food every week. Um, and, you know, I've been very, very lucky to have the support of my family as well. And so I knew I could sort of muddle through, but I think it was also my grief. I was like, actually, this just isn't right. I mean, is this it? And so I think that sort of gave me a little bit of anger, maybe, actually, just to say, do you know what? I'm not going to go to work every day and be treated like that. No, thanks. So I think that's what it was. I remember reading in an interview somewhere with you and someone else and you'd spoken a bit about how we can have like you know life throws you these things and they make you feel emotion in such a kind of vast and deep way and actually that that can have positive effects it sometimes gives you that push behind that you need and I think you were saying that um, a lot of founders have sometimes had a traumatic event or something's happened to them which has really kind of tipped them over the edge. Yeah I've sort of worked that out in conversations that I've had with people where, you know, you're sort of 30 minutes into a conversation and they say, oh, actually, I had this trauma as a child or, you know, this is kind of... I think that there must be some psychological connection between pain and trauma and drive, maybe. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, and I was wondering as well, I mean, now you, you know, you work with some of the biggest market leaders in terms of brands like Versace, Charlotte Tilbury, the list is endless, to say the least. And I was wondering if you ever... In the, I think there's there's such an element of dreaming big and it is important to dream big because you have to picture an end goal and that kind of pushes you along the way. But did you ever expect to get to where you are now? And also, are you good at stopping and reflecting and patting yourself on the back and saying, actually, I've kind of nailed it, <laughs> which is what it seems like to us? Um, now I'm starting to enjoy this less, Susie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, first of all, I never dreamt big. I I never did. And I believe quite a lot in the philosophies of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a very ancient Eastern text, philosophic text. And part of the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita is around don't be attached to the outcome or the reward, just be attached to the task itself. And I'm always amazed that people start companies and say, I'm going to build a company of a billion dollars and they actually get there. I'm like, wow, you know how to do things that I don't know how to do. My ambition was never that. I needed a job and I loved what I did. And I really was attached to serving our clients. That was my attachment of actually being able to do what you say you're going to do you know, go to work, make a client a promise, say, this is what I think I can do for you and do it. And that was really my reward. And then honestly, Susie, one thing led to another. I never dreamt that we would look after the brands and the businesses that we have and do look after. It's been absolutely amazing. And I don't think I could say it has surpassed my wildest dreams because I never had those dreams. I just went to the office every day and worked very, very hard. The second question that you asked me about, you know, do I ever take time to sort of sit back and think what's happened? Honestly, the answer is no, because, (laughs) um, and I, to my detriment, I think, every day that I go to work, I never uh, sit around or walk into the office and say, wow, look at all of this. This is amazing, isn't it? I never do that. I never, ever do. And I say to my detriment, because actually not so much for myself, but for others, the people that work in the company who work so immensely hard, 
They deserve to hear that. They really, really do. Probably more than I do. I'm probably not good enough at um, celebrating the incredible work that my colleagues um, uh, do all day, every day. But I must say that this pandemic has made me stop and reflect. It has made me. And I think that, you know, a lot of business has been in crisis. We have lost a lot of revenue uh, and we are very, very busy uh, imagining and working hard step by step in our process of recovery, which I think will take between two and three years. And I think that this time has really made me stop and think how incredible, how incredible the ride has been and how immensely lucky I've been to be even healthy enough to go to work every day. You know, as a as a mother, as a wife, as a woman, that there wasn't a pandemic 15 years ago. It's now. And actually, uh, one of my daughters in discussing this um, said to me, oh, mommy, you know, you'll be fine because you're older, you're wiser. You've been through a financial crisis. You've got so much experience under your belt. Of course, you're going to be fine. And so I actually really thought she's right. You know, I've had such an immense advantage of 25 years of being able to build a company with no massive interruptions or hiccups. So yes, I think that this this virus period has really taught me to just take a pause for a second Mm. and think about it all. But I think that also goes back to, I mean, I know you have your sort of core values and one of which being communication that's in your name and all that kind of stuff. And you wrote a lot about this in your book. And like you just said now, saying you're going to do something and actually doing it and then also recognizing something which I found so interesting and which appealed to me so much is that if you then hit a point where you're no longer able to do something or something comes along in the way or whatever and that's when you communicate straight away and you pick up the phone to your clients and you just say look this is the reason why whatever and I think that there's so much value in under promising and over delivering rather than over promising and under delivering which a lot of businesses seem to do and that's where it all goes wrong. Without wanting to get overly philosophical there's two points that I'd like to make around that. Um, And I don't want to make sort of gender-based stereotypical comments. However, I will speak about myself to say that I find it much easier to say yes than to say no. Yeah, me too. And um, I want to please. I think in a way that's maybe why I've been okay at my job is because I want the client to be happy. I want the client to think, gosh, yes, you know, that girl, she did what she said she was going to do. And that's been very helpful. And so that is definitely a driver for me. And I've had to learn very, very hard to say no. And so within that, you find yourself in a situation where in your gut, you really want to say, oh, yes, yes, I can do that. Yes, yes, absolutely, I can do it. Whereas actually, sometimes the smart person says, I'm going to let you down. So Mm. I'm going to disallow myself from wanting to, to make that happen for you. You know, that's, that's really, really, really important. And I found that the under-promising piece, uh, for my second point, has, has, has got us a very long way. If you think about it, if you think about one of the core principles in business around profit, profit, is re- which is a big success marker still in some businesses, sadly, still the only marker of success, is you give the least for taking the most, right? So you, 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 you make something that costs you in cash the very least and you try to sell it for as much as you can get away with and your margin is your profit in between. 
And so if you're a people pleaser and you really want to serve your clients, it's almost your, you're thinking about it from the reverse. How much can I give and how much can I be paid for that? So it's, it's very, very, very difficult to reconcile those things. But in the end, you do your job, you work your hardest, you give of your best and you charge fairly for that work. And how would you say, I know you have two kind of big, huge supports, Daniel and Tom, in your life who have worked with you. And I mean, I'm also speaking, again, not to sort of generalise the situation, but on behalf of myself, I know that I constantly say yes. And I often need my brothers or a sort of male figure in my life to come in and just cut to the chase and say, Susie, you're being ridiculous. No, whatever. And do you feel, are they sort of, are they a bit better at that? And has that been a good balance in kind of your partnership overall? Um, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of, of Daniel and Tom over the years. Um, what they're better at, I think, is telling me when I'm being completely unreasonable or ridiculous <laughs> or sometimes even idiotic. <laughs> but they're the only people that can turn around and say, no, just, just stop. Enough. Absolutely not. And guess what? They're always right. I guess that um, to answer your question directly, the person that needs to teach themselves that is, is you or me. And I can't rely on my business partners to do that for me. It's something that I've, I've had to learn. And I catch myself doing it now. Um, somebody asked me to do something yesterday. And I was very busy writing the email, tippy tap saying, Oh, yes, of course, you know, how can I help you? What can I do? And um, I thought, you know what, I've done that six times before. and It was an absolute nightmare. And it took me 95,000 hours. Why am I going to say yes again? Mm. And it was fine. Nobody liked me any less or, you know, the company hasn't gone bust because I said no. <laughs> um, so it's, I think it's a personal discipline. Exactly. It's so funny what you just said about nobody liked you any less or the company didn't go bust. And it's so true. We always jump to the worst conclusion and we, we pull these things out of thin air and we put them in place or whatever. And actually, I think that it is, it's a, a very simple and basic case of trial and error. I'm going to say no this time. Let's see what happens. And then you sort of get a lived experience and you sort of know it's like ammunition for the next time. That's absolutely right, Susie. There's actually, a, uh, and I'm not going to be able to quote it, but there's a fantastic Warren Buffett quote, you know, to talk about successful business people. And Warren says something like, you know, really successful people say no more than they say yes. Mm. And I really get that because I think that what happens is that when when you do start you know, being active in business. People ask you stuff. People, you know, come to you with ideas or proposals or, or you know, do you want to hire me or do you want to do this project? And probably most, you know, a lot of it just is just a no. I know it's hard because I think when you're so you're opportunistic as a person, everything feels exciting. Even if I know I'm not going to be able to commit to a, a job or something that I get offered, I see I'm excited by it. I'm like, oh, what's this opportunity? And you sort of read into it. And it's actually like you were just saying, knowing when to take a bit of a step back, evaluate the situation and just kind of weigh up whether it's the right thing for you. Yeah. And it makes me think completely tangentially about sort of work events in the evening. As the company grew, Tom and Daniel and myself started to kind of get invited to work stuff so sort of networking industry networking I guess you would call it and um, you know I was working very very hard and um, was very flattered to be invited to things and I would like rush out of the door uh, after work and kind of just turn up at an event and sort of you know do my best and I think it was Tom actually he sat me down and he said you know if if you're gonna do this do it properly 
Like, if you're going to say yes to something, don't just do it in an exhausted way because you think you should or you have. If you're going to go, go consciously and get suited and booted and look your best and decide why you're going and go there with every intention of being your best and doing your best. And if you can't do that, maybe it's better just just not go. I thought it was very good advice. That's such good advice. And there's this constant need to sort of do everything. But what is the point that doing everything at 50% or even 60, you know, when you could do a few things at 100 and it comes back to like, I suppose, quality over quantity and real value in the things that you are committing to and you are doing? Yeah, I mean, I can I can get images in my head right now of myself in the loos, in the station of King's Cross, rushing back from a client meeting, changing into some evening wear in the loos in King's Cross and rushing to an event and just, frankly, just not even being, you know, in a good headspace to be able to communicate or socialise with people. What's the point of that? So I guess, you know, one one lesson is do less. Don't do every single one, but when you do it, do it properly. I think that's a really good lesson. It sounds like the boys have been very supportive in lots of areas. Um, when, when I say that we, we have a joke, uh, you know, without you, I'm nothing. I actually mean it. It's not a joke at all. <laughs> but that's, that's what partnership's all about in business. And I think, you know, I, I guess there are these sole founders. And God, I don't know how they do it because there's so much to think about and so many strengths you need. You need to be introverted, extroverted, analytical, you know, airy-fairy, whatever. And actually, sometimes it's about accepting and championing the areas where you're less strong in and you know that's when you dish them off to someone else who could really kind of support you in that way yeah and you know it's really interesting that you say that I always say we is the strongest multiplier of I and I think that today in the world people talk about inclusivity and diversity and integration and these are very 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 deep complex and important things for us to think about. And in some parts of my career, I'll be really honest with you, Susie, I have sometimes wanted the recognition for starting a business. And particularly, as you say, I was much, much younger. Um, But really, in the end, that is ego, I'm afraid. And actually, you know, when people say to me, oh, Julieta, what you've achieved is so quite extraordinary. And the answer is, yes, but it's not me by myself. Yes, I've had a really strong contribution. I really have, but it has been the collective. It has been the extraordinary staff that I've had the privilege to work with. It's been our clients, and as you say, it's been my my business partners. And very often, Susie, what happens is that I might go into the office and say, I've got this idea. Guys, we've got to do this. And one of them will make that idea five times better. Yeah, that's the thing you can start with something and then you introduce it to someone else and it's like this massive explosion I wonder if just quickly on that I think there's kind of two things which just sprung to mind but I wonder if I think we all have the ability to to want recognition and whatever you know whatever that might appear in but you wrote a bit about in your book how you went into a meeting and you were sitting I think it was next to Daniel and a client was talking to well supposedly talking to both of you but only address Daniel throughout the whole meeting I think that was that right I just wondered how you found your career as a female and kind of that sort of balance around things and how you've been treated as a female founder especially when you were much younger yeah I mean I think that as you say the conversation actually happened with Tom and it was many 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 years ago now and so I suppose uh you know when I started the business I was just 26 years old. And so you you have to transport me to then, okay, because now I'm delighted. I'm delighted that the world is a very, very different place. And we've moved on leaps and bounds in many, many ways. But at the time, Susie, 
um, I was a young girl, uh, very much like you, and startup wasn't uh, wasn't a good word. Startup was, could you please go and get a proper job? Like, you know, go on a proper graduate training program with a proper corporate. But ultimately speaking, at the time, I wasn't the cool kid. I was the one oh, poor her, she hasn't got a proper job, Um, she's just come out of university and, um, you know, she hasn't got a job on a proper graduate trainee programme. So there was no, there was none of the sexiness of, um, you know, oh God, how cool, she's doing a startup, like what an entrepreneur, absolutely not, none of it. And so in that particular meeting, yes, I'd founded the company, Yes, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Yes, I had terrible imposter syndrome. And I suppose that the gentleman in the room saw me as a young, blonde, white, privileged girl, not a credible business person. Mm. And I'm afraid to admit, or, or rather, you know, I'm just going to tell you that the card that I always pulled was my Cambridge University card. And that was the only card that I had to play with. Yeah. Because in a situation like that, the conversation was had between businessmen in the room and they didn't quite know what I was doing there and so in my frustration I would slip into the conversation as if I hadn't meant to but my goodness I had meant to that I've got you know a very very good degree from Cambridge University and that was the only way as a young woman then that I had to help me to tell people I was serious. Mm. I know and I think it's a shame that you have to kind of rely on this tangible asset but I think now, I don't know if you would feel like this, if, I mean, the world is, it's changed a lot and it's continuously changing. And there are so many more of these female founders who are sprouting out. And I think the second point I was going to make beforehand was, you know, you were saying before when you were younger and you worked in PR marketing, maybe there's a bit of a kind of um, a not so nice atmosphere and people spend far too much time gossiping and not enough time working. And you have focused on building this company, which is predominantly female heavy, but is based around a collaborative working environment, as opposed to not I'm not quoting you by any means, this is just my take, as opposed to a competitive one, I suppose, in many ways. And I just think your point on, you know, there's a stronger we and, and I, and it's about sort of working together. Um, and I just wondered your take on that and how you've managed to really kind of channel that amongst all your employees because they seem like such a great team I've watched endless videos and (laughs) and seen bits and bobs you know I think honestly in terms of human and business evolution we're right at the beginning and um, when I started the business as a young woman I was perceived as a minority I am still a minority actually as a female CEO and founder Clearly now minority uh, with the very, very, very important work of the Black Lives Matter movement, the hashtag MeToo movement, all of these movements um, that are part of our cultural discourse and discussion. But at the time, you know, being a girl and, and still to a degree today was being a minority. And so I guess that in that situation, uh, my real interest is in the idea of inclusivity. If you are the intern or rather just the intern or just the receptionist. The just word is what I'm interested in. Because if you go and work at an organisation, the organisation will have a purpose. You know, it will be there to do something. And really, when you sign your contract, it says, every single person, you are the intern and you should be working your hardest to fulfil your commitment to the purpose of this organisation. But everybody else around you treats you like you're just the intern. 
And the just piece somehow immediately infers because you're more junior or because you've got a less paid role that you are a second class citizen. That is what a traditional organisational chart in an office tells you, that the CEO is up here and that the most junior people are down here. So why on earth would I feel as motivated as the CEO if everything around me is telling me that I'm not as important as somebody else or not as valuable as somebody else? And the most stupid thing about all of this is let's say you're half my age. It doesn't mean that you're half as intelligent as me. You could be the next Elon Musk, but you're just younger than me. doesn't mean that you're more stupid or have less potential. It's just that I was born at a different time than you. And therefore, I really, really, really like that idea of if everybody is in an organisation together and everybody has a role to play, whatever it is, in that objective of that organisation, then they should be treated as such. That's what I believe. I couldn't agree more. And my mum always says it takes all sorts to make the world go round. And actually, what would the business and the organisation be without all these different little clogs? So if you pull one out, the whole thing's going to stop running. So in some ways, everything is equally as important. That's right. I I always use in my training with the most uh, junior members of staff um, an amoeba, a picture. Do you remember in biology GCSE, there's an amoeba? And if you look at an amoeba, it's got all these little things inside it um, that are all different shapes and sizes. And they all do completely different, different jobs. Like they could be black, they could be white, they could be female, they could be male, they could be LGBTQ+, they could be anything. If you take one of those things outside of the amoeba, the amoeba dies. That is inclusivity, and that is the cell of life. So why have we gone off on this course of thinking that I'm more important than you? It's, it's, it's just ridiculous. And so I'm doing, a, I've actually written a model um, that I'm talking to the MBA students at Cambridge University about, which I've rather grandly called the Dexter model, which is if you are in an organisation, that the purpose of this model is if you're in an organisation and you are subject to being made to feel like a second-class citizen, what could a practical process be for you to be able to have that conversation with somebody? Mm, that's really interesting. So we're just we're just we're just testing that out. It's a, it's a six it's a six-step process, very very simple process of you know I'm in the office, I'm the junior person, and one of the bosses is treating me really badly. What could you do? What 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 can you do? without becoming the annoying junior person to help yourself through that process. And a lot of companies, by the way, at the moment are using uh, anonymous software uh, uh, platforms for that discussion because people are so frightened to lose their job, particularly now, because, you know, by complaining about a senior person, they might lose their job rather than be listened to fairly. I think that's so, I mean, you told me a bit about the model beforehand, and I think there is a bit of a lack of practical advice around that. And it's particularly at the moment, you know, I have friends who have been furloughed, made redundant, X, Y, and Z. And I just wondered if you had any kind of, I mean, first of all, advice for someone re-entering the job place at this time. And also as an employer, what do you really value? Is it qualifications? Is it attitude? Is it a combination of both? And what skills do you think are really valuable for tomorrow? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> that's a lot of questions. Um, you might have to remind me the first questions. But just in terms of the job market of today, um, first of all, uh, and I really, really mean this, the only attitude you can take is to be positive, to be thoughtful, and to know that you're going to get yourself through this. The minute that you stop believing that, 
the economy will come to a grinding halt. And the number of people that say to me, oh, I'm never going to get a job now. I'm not even going to try because I, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a job now. That will mean that for the next three to five plus years, our economy will stagnate. And it will be the people that are positive and try and persevere and apply real discipline that will frankly get this economy going again. And, you know, I'm going to talk about one of my daughters who is 23 years old. The day that the American uh, Homeland Securities opened the borders to people that could work in America on student visas, she was on that plane. She's got three freelance jobs. When the rest of a lot of people are saying, there's no point going to New York, there's no work, everybody's been made furloughed, everybody's been made redundant. And yes, there have been a lot of redundancies and the use of the furlough scheme, etc. But so number one is never lose hope. This is the only way out. The second thing is, is that I would really, really um, ask anyone to be super creative about how you present yourself. I love that. Okay, so in the olden days, you sent a CV. And yes, you, you need to get your CV in order. Make sure, please, that it hasn't got any spelling mistakes in it. Make sure that it's properly paginated. Make sure that it gives me, you know, a really good executive summary of who you are uh, at the top. So that if I've only got 30 seconds to be, well, this one looks interesting. It's right at the top. It's not sort of on the third page. That's the first thing. But I, I take that as a given. I really do. I mean, if you can't do that, then forget it. A lot of CVs in this country say the same thing. You know, I've got X GCSEs, I've got X A levels, I've got X degree from university or, or whatever it is. Why don't you use video? Send me a 45 second video showing me who you are and say, boom, this is my personality. This is who I am. This is what I'm after. Sorry if I took 40 seconds of your time. That's the sort of creativity that frankly isn't an enormous amount of creativity, but that can be immensely valuable and just stand out. I have to say also in the pandemic that I've received beautiful, beautiful cover letters. And whilst I can't hire those people now, the people that wrote those beautiful cover letters into my inbox have been put in a special drawer because to have the presence of mind and the time and the patience and the care to write a proper letter to say, I've looked at your company, I've seen what you've done, I'd love to be part of it, I know you're not hiring right now, but please consider me in the future, those ones go a long way. And the other thing is, is and I hear this again and again and again, is, yeah, I wrote, I, I wrote, I've sent my CV persevere, persevere. If you really want that job, write three times, write four times, write 10 times. That is impressive. And my final piece of advice, you got me on a roll now, Susie, is LinkedIn, 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 LinkedIn. If you use LinkedIn really well and you want to work at a company, you will find a connection with somebody in that company. Once you've found the connection through LinkedIn, you can message them directly. And if they're a decent human being, they'll help you out. Honestly, those, that is such valuable advice and it's so pragmatic. And I think that's something that so many people will appreciate because the reality is, is that at the moment, not only are there now a thousand applicants for every job where there were a hundred, but also overqualified people are now applying for jobs, which, you know, they're underqualified for. And there's that sort of area too. And I think that really practical advice of, and even you just saying, okay, yes, maybe TCS and not hiring specifically for X, Y, and Z at the moment, but you'll remember those people. And there will be a time when these, when, you know, you are again, whether that be in three months, six months, and then you open your special drawer and there you go. And I think that's what it is. It's giving people that confidence to persevere. And you're not a nuisance if you bog someone on LinkedIn, because actually they were that person three years ago, you know? Uh, 
absolutely right. Absolutely. And, and, and to answer your question about skills, yes, of course, I'm, uh, you know, education is all, you know, of course, I, I'm very, very passionate about education. And uh, again, with my own children, I've done everything in my power to give them the best education that they can have. That at least allows you to have a door in front of you to open. But opening the door to me is about the other intelligences. You know, people call that the softer skills. It's not the softer skills. It's it's your personality. It's your tenacity. It's your rigor. It's your personal discipline. It's your sunshiny personality. And all of those things, it's your will, it's your drive. All of those things are immensely valuable, even priceless in the workplace. Mm. That's so useful. I can't tell you how many people are going to value that advice, especially coming directly from a founder. And finally, just before we kind of conclude, I know we spoke a bit and you've spoken so much about this and you've done everything you can to kind of put things in place, but about inclusion and diversity at the moment, and especially considering the Black Lives Matter movement and your lovely friend, Miss Burke, and all those kind of things. Um, and I just, I wanted you to tell your story about, because we spoke about BLM and all these things are equally important, but I think we forget that there's so many different ways we need to look at inclusion. And her story about going into the makeup counter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when we talk about um, inclusion and diversity, I think most companies don't really know what that means, even. You know, they don't even understand the question. And frankly, neither do I. Because, Susie, as white, privileged women, we've never been in a situation where even just the way we look means that people treat us differently. And um, I listen quite a lot to an American author psychologist called Brene Brown. I'm sure you've come across her. And um, she says that, you know, a lot of black kids in America are given the talk by their parents. The talk means, you know, by the way, just so you know, you're not going to be treated fairly. So, you know, the sooner you get with that program, the better it is. And so for me, inclusion and diversity and integration means exactly that. It's about Black Lives Matter, but it's also about everybody together. And we know now, absolutely, that the workplace isn't better because it's an old boys city club and we're all the same and we, you know, we all come from the same place. We, we know that, that that's not the way forward for the future of humanity. We know that there's the biggest pay gap ever in history now. We have so, so, so much to make right. And sometimes the feeling for me is overwhelming and I feel very ill-equipped to deal with it. I'm very proud that I have a group of people at TCS who together alone without me came together to create an intersectionality committee. And for us as an organisation to really look at all intersectionality. And that is something that I'm immensely grateful for to all of those those people. And again, you mentioned uh, Sinead Burke, the activist, author, teacher, educator, who I've been lucky enough to meet. you know, that, that's really what inclusion really, really, really means. And we've got a long, long way to go. And in uh, the pandemic, but particularly in the Black Lives Matter movement, I've learned one thing, I hope many things, but to start with, is that the narrative has to change. And the narrative goes like this now. Number one, it's purpose. What is your purpose? Number two, it's about people. Think about those around you. And number three, it's about what you do. It's about the product. So it's now in that um, order of priority. Historically, it's like, what's the product? How can I sell it? How quickly can I get it out of here and promote it? And how exciting? It's not like that anymore. It's what's your purpose as an organization or as as a person? What do you believe in? What do you want your legacy to be? Number two is think about those around you. 
and really, really think about integration and diversity. And then third of all, do your business, but in that order. I think, yeah, I mean, I think as well, like you said, we've we've never experienced it directly because we haven't, you know, we weren't born into that body or whatever. And so it's very easy to kind of say, oh, but, you know, um, I, I haven't done anything purposefully wrong or whatever. But I think now it's it's about there's no ex- there's no excuse really there is so much education around the matter now more than ever whether it's whether you need to listen to things whether you need to read things watch things whatever it might be and it's just about reading digesting taking a step back and kind of little things that you can do and I think just being more aware as well and then driving your purpose I think that's right and I think that also listening to things on both sides you know not not just listening to one voice but hearing the discussion, you know, when people say, oh, we've got to have awkward conversations. Yes, of course, we have to have awkward conversations. Sometimes you don't even know how to have the conversation because you're so frightened of making a mistake. But um, again, there's a podcaster in the US called Sam Harris. And Sam also has some, you know, pretty controversial views. But to me, conversation and debate is not just about having your own point of view and only your point of view, but is genuinely about seeing somebody else's point of view you might not agree with it. And actually, Daniel said to me this morning, we were disagreeing about something. And he said, it's okay to disagree on stuff. It's okay. And, um, and so yeah, I, of course, welcome as an organisation, as an individual, one is committed to a life of learning, and knowing that one doesn't have the answers and knowing that we can learn so much from one another just as long as we're happy and open enough to have those discussions. Mm. Well, that's what I thought was so amazing about your relationship with Miss Burke is she said to you, you know, I, I went in, into this makeup counter and I think that she couldn't reach the makeup. Was that right? And she's been so open. I think you were saying to me as well, open in her own experience, how she feels in certain settings and practical ways others can help her, which doesn't make her sort of feel uncomfortable. Well, I mean, I think that with with Sinead, um, first of all, I, I must not and I cannot speak for Sinead. But certainly as an activist, this is somebody who I've A, been privileged through my work to know. Uh, B, is somebody that I am so genuinely inspired by and you know Susie I think we all use the word inspired far too loosely but I properly am inspired by Sinead and I think that uh, understanding Sinead's life and world and frankly what I can do to um, work with her in whatever way that I can um, she has taught me things that I've never even bothered to think about and you know uh, Sinead might talk about inclusivity and diversity, but what's what's inclusive about shopping if you can't even, you know, see yourself in the mirror in the changing room or something like that? Yeah, so, really yeah. basic stuff. She, she, she really is a, a very, very big hero for me. I think, yeah, it's amazing. And someone like her who's happy to share her own experience can be such an educational piece for other people who haven't stopped to think about it because they've never faced that scenario. And I think now, like, the Black Lives Matter movement is just one element which will hopefully encourage brands to think more about, right, this decision, I'm going to make this one decision, I'm going to, to put this product on shelf, I'm good, whatever it might be. How is that going to affect every single person, you know, who I'm trying to kind of my consumer base on just like a simple and a more in-depth level? Yeah, and I think that the answer to that is, again, one of the great business leaders in fashion at the moment is a guy called uh, Remo Ruffini. He's the chief executive of Montclair. And uh, the other day he was doing a webinar and he said, you know, really, one of the most important things that we do as a company is listen to our consumers. Every review, 
every moment in store or online, the feedback that we get is what we should be listening to. Because you brands, brands and businesses and corporates and uh, you know organizations, they can't talk at people anymore. They have no. to talk with them. Mm. Well, it's such a good sort of summary to end on. And finally, I just wondered how have you balanced? You've been, your business has been under, I mean, a lot of pressure, I can only imagine. But also being a mum and all those kind of things at the moment. How have you found that balance the last month or so? Um, first of all, I'm extremely clear of my privilege in, in that capacity. I, you know, have been in the countryside. And so that has meant that uh, I've been in nature which has really, really been so immensely helpful to me. Um, I've had my family around me, and I'm so conscious that many people don't have their family around them. And for that, I, again, feel immensely grateful. I'm a yogi. Uh, I do a lot of yoga. And uh, one thing I feel so ashamed about is that before the lockdown, I would very often say, oh, I've been too busy to do my practice. I'm 51 years old, Susie. I need to look after my health. What a silly, silly thing to say. And in the lockdown, I've been doing um, a lot of yoga, every single day yoga. And, um, and I really try to look after myself. I do. Without it becoming obsessive um, and my daughters and my husband um, have been incredibly supportive uh, as they've watched me go through this time of really kind of, uh, you know, seeing my business world as as we know it change really quite dramatically. But, um, you know, I think that um, one thing that Brene Brown talks about in her podcast is the difference between disappointment um, and, and self-pity. And that that's really something interesting to focus on. You know, it's not just me that's had the pandemic. Everybody has, some people have obviously lost loved ones. I have been fortunate enough not to lose a loved one. And therefore, um, I am not self-pitying myself. I am grateful. And of course, I'm disappointed that having built a business over 25 years, that it's had a hell of a knock. I'm in a hell of a knock. But really, my focus and my purpose is to stay strong physically, mentally and emotionally and uh, and build for an even better future. I love that. And it's such a good note to sort of end on is that you could be one of the busiest people in the whole world, but there's always time for self-care. <laughs> and actually, what is an engine without fuel? So I think that's very important. That's right, Susie. And I think, you know, again, as I said to you before, oh, I've been so busy with my great big career. Well, you know what? A lot of mums have never got the fortune of going to work every day. Yeah. And I have been so desperately fortunate to have healthy children, to have a loving, supporting husband, to have allowed me to further myself and try to make a small contribution to the business world, which I've just been so grateful for and I, I enjoy. And by the way, possibly an even more important point is I think the best of my career is ahead of me. That's so exciting. Such a good, like you were saying, positive mindset. PMA is something I learned about the other day, which is positive mental attitude. (laughs) And I love it. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's right. One of the greatest, greatest inhibitors of success, whatever success is, is self-limiting beliefs. Value your value, be true to yourself and have the courage of your convictions. Well, Julieta, thank you so much. That's been incredible advice in kind of all realms. And before I let you go, I just have a couple of quick fire questions to ask you if that's all right. So I wanted to start with a book that you would recommend reading. 
Okay, my book recommendation is by Stephen Cope. Yeah. And his book is called The Great Work of Your Life. Amazing. And this is a bit of a weird one, but it's unique to myself. Is What would your favourite condiment be and why? It was a funny question, Susie. Sorry. And I've decided, <laughs> I've decided that it's honey, if honey is a condiment, because I think bees are brilliant beyond our possible human understanding. They're under an enormous threat. And one day when I don't go to the office every single day like I do now, I want to have some bees and try and build their colonies. You'll be pleased to hear that honey definitely passes as a condiment. Excellent. (laughs) So that's great. And what is your favourite London or local restaurant? So I wanted to say to you that my favourite place to have lunch in London is um, a members club called Five Hartford Street. And the reason why I love it so much is because it's lovely, but more than that is because one of the most senior uh, members of staff there is an Italian guy called Christian. And he is just one of the most welcoming, wonderful people. And I feel real connection with him. I have an Italian side to me. And um, so really above the food and the beautiful decoration, it's about that human touch because he makes me feel so welcome. Oh, it all comes back to kindness. And a mentor or someone that has inspired you in your life? Well, I think that I've been so incredibly lucky to have people around me, my business partners, certainly my father. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you will have read in my book, John Frieda has yeah. been the most amazing guide to me. And um, I've also had somebody who has been incredibly close to me throughout this pandemic. Um, And I feel that that's a North Star for me and somebody who's just given me their time. And I'm so grateful for that. So, yes, get some mentors in your life. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about it. And if you could have dinner with three people alive or dead, who would they be? I wanted to have dinner with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Prince. Cool. And possibly Grace Kelly. I like it. Quite a musical table. Yeah, I just thought it could be a really interesting evening. <laughs> I'm sure it would be at the least. And finally, where's your favourite travel destination when that time comes again? Well, um, I think we spoke earlier about mountains. Energetically, I absolutely love mountains. Their majesty, their vastness makes me understand my microscopic value and meaning on this planet and I find them genuinely nurturing and so I love my mountains I grew up on Lake Como in Italy and also I I have a home in the mountains uh, in the Alps in France so uh, that's really where I love to go and get lost in the mountains. Oh well thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and an honour really and I know that so many people will hopefully find this really really insightful um and I'm hoping that everyone will now go and purchase a copy of your book, which would be great. Well, I'm not so worried about that, Susie, but A, I'm so impressed by the work that you do. And all I really want to try and do is help people who maybe I've just got a few years on. And so please keep doing what you're doing and stay strong. And we will all get through this together. I promise you. And thank you for having me. Oh, please come back anytime. <laughs> Thanks, Julietta. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Inside Out series with me, Susie Flory. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could please rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it makes it easier for people to find us. Have a good day. Bye.